I want to make this clear. It's not a small thing to leave a faith tradition. It is a huge decision because I owe so much, we both do, Mm -hmm. to the Church of the Nazarene. Welcome to the Millennial Pastor Podcast. I'm your guest host, Britt Bowlerjack, and for the next few months, we're going to be interviewing millennial pastors who have transitioned out of the Church of the Nazarene. It is my hope and prayer that these stories will be um, the catalyst for beautiful conversations to come about who we are and where we're going and how we can better embody who God is calling us to be. You're not alone. You know, there are so, so, so many of us who are asking questions and trying to figure out what a wholehearted life uh, means. One of my first things is like, if you can stay, you should stay. But I would say if you're going to stay, you have to do the work. That's really all that matters at the end of the day, because it's all about faithful ministry. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm here today with my guest, uh, Megan Madsen. She's the pastor at Covenant United Methodist Church in Spokane, Washington. Welcome to the show. Thanks. It's good to be with you. Yeah. Thanks for coming. Um, So I wanted to kind of start from the beginning and ask you, how originally did you end up in the Church of the Nazarene? Um, Yeah. So probably I started off in getting into the church of the Nazarene by accident, actually. Um, I grew up in a really small rural town and um, it was like one of the bigger youth groups and one of the only youth groups and mm-hmm. it was something to do. And so I started yeah. going uh, to the church of the Nazarene um, in, on Wednesday nights for youth group and didn't really know how that differed at all from like the Presbyterian church I grew up in. Mm. Um, and then in high school, um, I got my driver's license at 14 and a half because go Idaho and started driving myself on Sunday mornings. Um, and was getting, um, really involved in, with the youth group and with like the worship team, I played bass guitar. Mm-hmm. And so I started driving myself on Sundays. Um, and then, um, had felt like sense of, sense to call the ministry at Nazarene church camp, like everybody else, hmm. um, going into my uh, freshman year of high school. And so after, I don't tell that story later, but, uh, I, uh, uh, so I went to NNU cause, uh, we went there for, you know, regional events and youth group events and stuff. And I just loved it. I loved hmm. everything about NNU. Hmm. Um, and so, and that was where my youth pastor had gone. Um, I fell in love with it. And so I went there and probably it became by choice a Nazarene when I was in, at, at NNU and actually like knew what that meant. Yeah. I love that. Um, yeah. okay, so tell me kind of the fill in the gaps and tell me the story of your, your call to ministry. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'd been a part of the youth group for a couple of years at that point. Um, my youth pastor had really like mentored me and I was a part of like one of the teen worship teams. And, um, so I was at the church all the time and went to camp, uh, for the first time with the Nazarenes, um, mm. because everybody gets a call at church camp <laughs> and right. it's like, Oprah, you get a call and you get a call and you get a call. <laughs> um, and the speaker gave an altar call mm-hmm. and, um, like I said, I grew up Presbyterian, so Presbyterians don't do altar calls <laughs> um, necessarily. 
And uh, so that was going on. And I was kind of sitting in my chair and watching this all sort of happen and um, really was just, um, was like watching students go up and pray with their youth pastor or their youth pastor would take them aside and talk with them. And I just really felt this sense of like, this is what I made you to do. And this is what I want you to do. And so I just started sobbing, mm. like full ugly cry, go up to my youth pastor, say, I need to talk to him. He takes me over to the side and he's like, so, so what's going on? You know, thinking about to be like, I have, you know, confess some huge addiction or some issue. And I'm like, I feel called to be a pastor. <laughs> and he goes, I really don't know how to respond to that because that's a good thing and you're crying. So I don't know what to do. Like, what do you need? <laughs> what do you need? Um, what do you need from me? Um, <laughs> and, uh, and he's like, I, I don't know why you're crying. And I was like, yeah, it's just a really big deal. And he's like, I know, <laughs> but why are you crying? Um, so after that, he really started to um, like mentor me with more intentionality and just disciple me with uh, greater depth and give me like, opportunities to lead in the youth group and I got to preach on a couple Wednesday nights in high school and by all stretches I was basically his intern um you know um and so yeah so that was one of the reasons also I wanted to go to NNU just to study to be a pastor and so yeah that was my that's my calling well okay so tell me like kind of where you ministered from from there yeah so went to NNU um started doing like you know freshman ministry student church tour (laughs) of uh, all the Nazarene churches in town Mm um had like literally had a greeter refuse to give me a bulletin which was like it was just really strange I was like please give me one I want to see if I like your church (laughs) it was weird um like that was probably the one that I was always like I don't know if I can do this (laughs) like goodness um but ended up starting interning at church of the Nazarene. So I served there for a while. Um, and then some, uh, stuff happened in my life. Um, some different, um, really severe grief things. Mm -hmm. And I just needed to change. It was nothing to do with, I loved that church. Um, but I just really felt like I needed to be in a different environment. Um, so I started interning at Church of the Nazarene going into like my sophomore junior year um and that was like a much more traditional like Nazarene Nazarene church mm-hmm. um was loved by a lot of people really well there mm. also had some weird experiences with people not believing in women in ministry and mm. um but like by and large had some mostly really really great experiences there met some mm. of my best friends that I'm still friends with now um oh. there and um then Going um, into my senior year of college at NNU, um, one of my professors was was serving as the interim pastor for a church in, mm-hmm. um, and asked me to like help with music over the summer on their Sunday nights uh, service. Um, so I was doing that, and through that, met he was looking to hire a youth pastor and submitted my resume, got coffee, he interviewed me. We discovered we're probably best friends um and ended up serving as his youth pastor for a while after going to NNU um I finished in December my classes 
um, was working there, went through some deconstruction, all the good stuff that happens after you leave university, and uh, worked with the teens there, which were largely unchurched kids, largely um, at or below poverty line, a lot of them at risk, um, and just really realized that like I needed more tools to effectively mm-hmm. pastor, um, that I didn't have all of the skill sets and tools I needed to be a faithful pastor. Um, so started applying to seminaries, um, at that point, um, was looking at a lot of different seminary options, um, not just NTS, but lots of them outside the Nazarene tradition, um, still with the intention of staying within the church of the Nazarene, Mm -hmm. um, and a really beloved mentor of mine told me, um, in all honesty, that if I went to any other seminary, I would never get a job in the church of the Nazarene, um, because she said it would be two strikes being a woman and, um, being not Nazarene enough. Um, so I spent a lot of time praying about that and was really angry about it for a while and got over it and went to NTS, um, and eventually fell in love with Kansas city. Mm. Um, started pastoring at a church called, um, (laughs) funny story with how that started was just pastoring there. Um, my first Sunday I met him and told him like, Oh yeah, I just finished being a youth pastor, starting seminary in a couple weeks, blah, blah, blah. And you shook my hand and said, great. Do you want to be our youth pastor? And I was like, I just met you strange man. No, <laughs> but maybe. Um, so we went out to coffee and she told me he was getting ready to resign. And I was like, Oh, I feel like I'm, you're telling me a lot of secrets. Um, but I just love him. He's great. Um, and then during the interim, the church, um, asked me to serve as, uh, initially a co-youth pastor, the sole youth pastor. Um, so I served during interim, um, but she was like the dumbest career path. Like who does that? Me. Um, but then was called to be the pastorate and we also discovered that we were made to be best friends. So, um, I love that. We just had a lot of fun working together. Um, so I served as the youth pastor, was serving as a youth pastor there as a unique, um, ministry model in that they own and operate a strip mall and lease it out to local businesses and partner with them. And, um, after being the youth pastor for a while, asked me to step into being a full-time associate pastor to do that, to run the strip mall. So seminaries start offering classes on how to write legal paperwork. Um, so I did, did that. Um, it was a lot of fun. I learned so much. And then, um, like, honestly, probably would have stayed forever, but God had other plans. So (laughs) then two weeks to the day before I married my now husband, James, Mm -hmm. um, I had to go to the ER because I was having mm-hmm. abdominal pain. Um, and while I was waiting in, to get to the ER, I got a phone call from a buddy of mine out West asking me to submit my resume for a church. In- and I said, that's really dumb. I have to go to the ER now. Goodbye. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, so two weeks of the day before we got married, it was eight days before I was supposed to get ordained and get this phone call about this church. I'm like, no, that's stupid. I'm not doing that. But then because of this trip to the ER and some medical stuff, I spent the weekend laid up on a couch, um, just in a lot of pain and had a weekend to sit and do nothing but pray and homework. Mm. And I really felt like um, God said, like, walk through the doors until I close them. Mm. Um, and so really, um, my fiance at the time, now husband and I felt like it was just supposed to be, um, a trial run for us to like, go see what the application process was like. 
Mm. But then every time the next like hurdle would come up, we really felt like God was like, keep going, keep going. Um, until we kind of got to the point of um, the interview and we really had to decide like, do we feel called here? And we said like, we feel called to get on the plane. We'll see what happens on the other side. Mm. Um, so we came out and interviewed and um, about half the interview questions between um, from the congregation were all about my gender and um, like, how can I lead this church? If my husband is supposed to be the head of my household, does that make him really the lead pastor? Mm. And so it was like, not a great experience for an interview. And we both came back and said, we are like, I'm called to pastor these people. Wow. Um, like we, I knew it in my bones mm. and I knew it because I didn't want to go. Mm. And, and yet I felt like I had to, to do the right thing. Mm. Um, like I knew that God was saying yes to this. And I was like, but I like, but I love them. Um, and like over time, God really like built some excitement and some love, um, into that journey. But initially, like, that was how I knew is that I didn't want to go and still felt like it was time. <laughs> um, mm. so, um, we packed up and left Kansas city and moved, um, about an hour and a half South of where I was pastoring. Mm. Um, and past was pastoring there. Um, and while I was pastoring there is really where, um, yeah, really where I came to understand that it was time for me to leave the church of the Nazarene. Um, like I remember the day that it happened. Well, tell me about um, that. Yeah. So initially things with the church, you know, the honeymoon period was great. I thought everything was beautiful about them and lovely, even when it wasn't. And yet I just like had this sense, like it was just this moment of clarity over a couple of weeks. Um, and so my husband and I were talking and I was like, James, there's an expiration date on my service in the church of the Nazarene. Like I've never like felt it as clearly as I do in this moment. Mm. Um, because I said like, everything that I am committed to and understand to be true about the kingdom of God, I'll have to sacrifice so many of those things for me to stay. Mm -hmm. And I said, I have been told my like whole journey through ministry, um, through ordination, that what I was supposed to do was duck my head and say what I needed to say, but do my darndest to not lie. Um, and then once I got ordained, I could change things. Then once I, be then once I became a lead pastor, I could change things. Then once I become a DS, I can change things. Mm -hmm. um, and like, I'd been on that district for a couple of months when we found out we were going to have to go through a DS, a DS search. Um, and everybody's talking about this. Um, and I just asked the question in a group of pastors, I said, so what are we doing to make sure we're including women and people of color in the application process? And, um, I was basically told by everybody in the room, except for the two pastors, two or three pastors I was really good friends with that. Like my question was inappropriate. How dare I ask that? Was I calling them racist? Mm. Um, we're just looking. And then one of them even said, we're just looking for the best guy. And I said, what if it's not a guy? And he said, that's not what I meant. You're taking my words out of context. Mm. Um, so I was immediately the troublemaker. <laughs> um, but at the same time was like the youngest pastor on the district. I was the newest pastor on the district. I was this young female. So like, 
everybody was like really nice. Um, I really felt like I was kind of their poster child mm-hmm. um, and I didn't really want to be. So, so all this has go- been going on and we were getting ready to call a new DS and it was just this moment of like, I will have to just give up every ounce of my integrity to stay. Mm-hmm. And it's not worth it for me to do that. So when I was getting ready to graduate from NNU, um, one of my professors shook my hand and said, promise me you're not gonna leave. Like no, no pretext, nothing. And I was like, I'm graduating, I have to leave. And he goes, no, I mean, don't leave the church of the Nazarene. And I was like, you know that that's not, it's not all up to me. And he said, that's fine. If they make, if they force you out, then that's okay, you can go, but don't leave. And I told that story kind of as a joke to one of my professors at the seminary at NTS and he, it just broke his heart. And he was like, that's not right, Megan. Um, he said, you are called by God to serve the kingdom of God. And he said, if you have to sacrifice that to stay in an institution, then you're not following the call of God on your life. And he said, mm-hmm. so he said, if you have to, if, and he said, if, in order to follow that calling, you have to leave, then you shake the dust from your cloak as you go. And we don't deserve you if that's what happens. Um, and I never really understood, like initially I was offended that he said that to me. I was like, how dare you? I am staying. <laughs> um, and I saw behind the curtain and I saw stuff happen. By the time I was a pastor, about half the people I started seminary with had left the church of the Nazarene by mm. um, either their own choice or having their credentials taken away mm. um, for being honest and believing the same things I believe about the kingdom of God. Um, and I finally, it just occurred to me like, <laughs> sure, I can stay, but I'm going to have to lie, beg, borrow, steal. I'm tired of pastoring in places where I have to tell my LGBTQ friends that if they visit, they can come to my church, but they have to know my church won't accept them. Mm. I'm tired of explaining to queer people who come to my church that like, you know, I love you. I believe in your full personhood, but my denomination won't let me like make you a member, but your kids can be members. So I can count them on my freaking paperwork at the end of the year. And I can baptize your kids and I can baptize you and count those things but you can't vote for me as your pastor. And I just got to the point where I couldn't stomach it anymore that I could enter into spaces and pastor churches that people I love and care about can't darken the doorway of. Um, And that was really painful. Yeah. One of my... uh, mentors and one of my really good friends used to jokingly call me um, future GS and I remember telling my husband that night saying like she's gonna be so disappointed Hmm. like I'm gonna lose all of these beautiful friendships I have because I can't stay I can't do it and at the time um my husband was like that's dumb we're not called to leave you're supposed to stay and we're not having this conversation which makes him sound like a jerk, but he's just a very slow processor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I kind of sprung a lot of stuff on him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kind of just kept like, I just really felt like I just needed to spend some more time praying about it. And um, so we, I just kept pastoring 
and things at that church were slowly becoming more and more toxic, especially as we were going into another election season. And um, I know probably a lot of people hearing this know the tension of you are trying to bring the word of God to the people of God and worrying if you say something that it will be reported to your DS. Mm. And that was just really causing a real mental break for me. Um, mm. was having panic attacks and dealing with a lot of depression and anxiety and all sorts of things with that on top of the really struggling at this individual church. Um, and then a couple of things kind of happened in quick succession at that point. Um, the seminary fired a staff member for being gay and who was not a part of the Church of the Nazarene. And that individual um, was a really good friend of me and my husband uh, while we were in seminary. Mm. And for me, that was just like the final nail in the coffin. Mm. Um, but for my husband, that was the, that was it. Um, and he got off, off of work one day and just called me and said, I'm done. It, we have to leave. I can't do this. Um, so I had no idea that what that was going to look like leaving, um, all of my contacts in the church or in the church of Nazarene, all of my education was in the church of Nazarene, all of my formation as a pastor was in the church of Nazarene. Um, that it, I, like I said, so going back to all the pastors that mentored me there had left the church of Nazarene. So I called up my friend who is he, was he serving as a United Methodist pastor. Now she's retired. And I called her and I said, I'm sure this isn't a surprise to you, um, but it surprised me. And I said, the church of Nazarene can't be my home anymore. Can you tell me a little bit more about the United Methodist church? Just at that point, really exploring, open to any kind of leading of the spirit. Um, and we talked for a long time um, on several occasions. And it started off with me just kind of like word vomiting on her. Uh, told her about just so many things. And she said, you know, I've gone through all the same things. And she said, she said, you know that the United Methodist Church is looking down the barrel of a split. She said, you know, we are dealing with some serious stuff. And I said, yeah. And she goes, I have never once questioned the sanctity of the church serving in this denomination. And she said, Megan, you will believe in the sanctity of the church again. She said, it's not perfect. She said, there's lots of toxic people. She said, it's far from perfect. She says, we have really broken systems too, but you'll believe in the sanctity of the church again. And I remember that as being this moment of saying, of realizing like, yeah, that's what's been broken is that I don't believe in that anymore because I have seen horrible things happen and yes horrible things happen everywhere but it feels like these are just accepted norms here and there's no way to challenge them or to question them and and so I really I spent a lot of time praying about it and really felt like um really just felt like the spirit was leading the direction of the United Methodist Church. So I asked what the next steps were. I reached out to a United Methodist DFs, um, who now is one of my congregants. And I just love getting to see him every Sunday <laughs> um, and pastor him. 
um, for those of you who don't know, the United Methodist Church has term limits on their district superintendents. Mm -hmm. um, but so he, um, I reached out to him, sent him an email, cover letter, set up a phone call with me. And from that moment, there's never been a point where I didn't feel like I was being treated as someone who is trustworthy, not as someone who is suspect. Mm. Um, and I, it didn't occur to me until I was processing with my counselor. And I said, like, I feel like he trusts me. And I feel like that means something bad. And she was like, he should trust you. <laughs> You're a trustworthy person. And um, that was the first moment I put together that I've always had felt like I've had to be defensive with, with institutional leaders in the church of the Nazarene. Um, and so started the process of um, uh, being, looking for an appointment, um, submitting myself to be appointed as a pastor um, in this church. Um, and then going through the process of telling my Nazarene DS. Um, one thing I am grateful for is that the Nazarene DS basically said, I trust you to figure it out. Um, hasn't spoken to me since, which is fine. Um, so I am grateful that he hasn't done anything to punish me. Um, and am uh, uh, in the process of having my orders recognized by the United Methodist Church. So as of today, I'm still technically an elder and good standing with the Church of the Nazarene. Mm -hmm. um, and, but all the powers that be know that I'm working to end that connection. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what's going on right now. Thank you for, for telling that story. I really appreciate it. Um, well, tell me about life since the transition. What has God been doing in your life and ministry since then? So I was really lucky to get to take some time between ending my service at my church in Hayden and starting my first appointment in the United Methodist Church. So I took a kind of sabbatical. I'm really grateful for that. Mm -hmm. um, basically, my job was to rest up and to go to counseling. <laughs> yeah. And that, and I'm really, really grateful for that. I don't think I could have stepped into this position if I didn't take that time. Mm -hmm. um, but like, I've always heard a lot of people in the Church of Nazarene say, say while I was there, um, the grass isn't greener on the other side. And my experience has been exactly the opposite is true. Mm. Um, and that's not just because I moved from an unhealthy church to a healthy church. Um, it's been like night and day. Um, what's been really hard is there have been a lot of just normal ministry things and a normal administrative things that are now very triggering to me. Mm -hmm. um, because as I've stepped into this environment where um, the church council, the first time they met me, they were like, we are so excited. We finally have a female pastor. We've been asking for one. Um, we're so excited we have a young pastor. We've been asking for one. Um, mm -hmm. Not a single person has, like there has not been a single person at my new church that has questioned my ability to lead has not immediately and implicitly trusted me as their pastor. Mm. Um, I never had to defend my right to pastor them. Mm -hmm. I just got to start pastoring them. <laughs> and it was like, 
really shocking. I was like, I, I feel like there's going to be a shoe that's going to, the other shoe is going to drop here. Hmm. And like, make no mistake, all churches have problems. I am dealing with some of those problems and uncovering some of those problems every day. Hmm. But all that my new DS asks of me is he said, if you preach something controversial, just give me a heads up. So somebody, somebody gives me a call, I can defend you and know what I'm defending you about. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that was it. He was like, I trust you. Just, I want to know if I get a phone call, what I have to say. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, my church invited me, wanted me to immediately to talk about LGBTQ inclusion. They want me to share with them about you know, the future of the United Methodist Church. They want to hear about Christian nationalism and why, why are evangelicals behaving this way in the pandemic? Um, but like, those are the things that my people want to know about is like, yeah. So it, it's been such a gift to be immediately trusted, immediately like welcomed as their pastor. Mm. Um, and even during the process of my appointment, the DS told them, Megan will be your first female pastor. So your job is to help educate your congregation about things that are not appropriate to be said to a female pastor. Wow. And he said, a rule of thumb is if you wouldn't say it to me, you don't say it to her. Mm. And the count, church council was like, what do you mean people would say things? Like, what are things that people would say that they're not supposed to say? <laughs> like they didn't, like they, I had to tell them what sexism would look like. And they were like, why would people say that? I was like, I mean, what a world. Yeah, it's a fair question. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, I mean, fair point, but they do. And they're like, no, they no, people don't say those things, Megan. And I'm like, they do though. Um, so things like that. It's just been so different. I get to have mm. LGBTQ council members. I get to bless pets and... I get to, you know, just do the things I was made to do mm. um, and ex and preach the kingdom of God, knowing that that's still going to piss people off. Yeah. But I get to do it in a place that trusts me to, to do that. Mm. It's just, it's really hard to explain the difference that I've made in my mental health and knowing that like even if I alienate half my congregation by saying something that I know to be true of the gospel and mm -hmm. half my church walks out like my dad is probably not going to be happy that I did it so like did it so quickly like he's gonna be like you did what but yeah. you said what okay we're gonna figure this out I've never never really had that support mm. I don't know that seems kind of rambly no, it's great. That it actually leads me to kind of to my next question, which is like, how might we, the Church of the Nazarene, have made a more like hospitable place for you in your ministry in our denomination? Honestly, if the Church of the Nazarene was just the Church of the Nazarene. Tell me what you mean by that. Yeah. Um, if we actually practiced a big tent, if they practiced a big tent, doctrinally speaking. Hmm. Um, but in reality, what's happened and is happening in the Church of the Nazarene is that the big tent only extends to conservatism and fundamentalism and maybe moderates. Like moderates are okay. Um, but if anyone swings left of center, 
the Church of the Nazarene, um, lots of district superintendents, lots of districts, lots of pastors target them. Mm. Um, lots of people that we know that's happened too. Mm. Um, and what a sad reality that, like, that even people who aren't defending positions that are outside the bounds of Nazarene theology mm. are targeted just for being quote unquote progressive. And they're not being progressive. They're mm. stating things that are deeply tied to the Christian gospel. And I think if, I think that if the Church of the Nazarene had actually embodied that sense of their space here, mm. I think there could have been space for me. Yeah. Um, but when lines are drawn in the sand and boxes are created, um, you know, I think, yeah, it just makes me sad. Mm. It could have been different. What about like the the kind of nitty gritty practical things we could have done or or the denomination could have done to be more hospitable to your ministry? Like, I expect to experience sexism. We live in a world that is broken. Mm. I expect to see racism. We live in a world that is broken. I expect to see classism. I expect to see ageism. I expect to see all of those things. But because our denomination doesn't actually want to hear about the systemic problems, the leadership of the church didn't like they would commiserate and say, wow, isn't that terrible that that happened? Well, well, yeah, what are we going to do about it? Like, how are we going to actually tell our congregations? Like, you don't get to say you're not going to receive a female pastor's resume. Mm. And before we even give you resumes, let's talk about and disciple you in the ways that we should have healthy hiring practices mm. and have like actual HR policies and that we need to practice these things because they create mm. better, healthier, safer churches that better reflect the ways of Jesus because it means we're treating people with dignity and addressing our biases. Mm. Um, <laughs> like if there was actually organizations or agencies within the church of the Nazarene that we could turn to and say like this is happening or this happened mm. if there was actually like I went to NNU right if we actually held presidents accountable for firing tenured pat tenured professors for no other reason than being open theists mm. or or from in America for firing a chaplain because he talked about violence as not being a part of the kingdom of God mm. like when we keep closing the doors to the gospel and have no means of like addressing them, that's the problem. Sin will creep in. Like we are human beings. We're really good at that. But if we don't have systems in place that we can like appeal to and say like, this isn't right. And we need to tell the truth. And instead of telling the truth because we cover it up, like, thank you. Goodbye. Like mm. that's why we're losing generations of pastors and generations of lay people because they just want us to tell the truth. Mm. And if the truth is that we screwed up, then say so. Yeah. Like, man, a student that was at NNU with me because she came out as gay, had all of her scholarships stripped away, but was told you can still attend NNU. Mm who do you call to say this isn't right? Yeah. I think that's, you know, if I had a path to fight, I would have probably stayed and fought. But there's, you can't, you can't box shadows, you know? 
So I don't know yeah. if that's helpful, but it's honest. Thank you for sharing that. Um, what words of wisdom or encouragement would you want to say to to your peers who are still in the Church of the Nazarene or, or what might you want us to hear? I'll be honest, um, this is a hard one for me. Um, um, I'm in communication with a lot of folks who have left now. Um, and a lot of us have talked about how it's really hard to see people that we love get to stay and thrive when all that's all we wanted to do too. Mm. Um, so I would say that like, I say that without any intention to be hurtful or mean spirited, just to say that, like, I think that needs to be acknowledged. Yeah. And that, um, that when we do leave, it's not because we didn't love the church of the Nazarene. Yeah. And it's not that we didn't love the church and it's not that we don't love Jesus. Um, so when we leave and then you cut us out of your lives, that's really painful. Um, and I would say if you're going to stay, you have to count the cost. You can't stay and leave things as they are. If you're going to stay, your head has to come up out of a foxhole. Mm. Um, and I know that sounds really scary and harsh. Um, there's a lot of people staying that I really respect and admire and are doing that hard work and are pushing the bounds and challenging the systems. And there's a lot of people that are staying that I know who believe the same things as I do and are just, um, they're just writing the status quo and saying they wanna change things. But when it comes down to it, aren't actually being allies to anybody. Mm. And I say that with a lot of grace. Um, I know it's really scary. I know it's really hard. Um, you know, like I, I know what those things feel like. It's, I know it's really hard. Mm. Um, but I would say if you're going to stay, you have to do the work that, that I wanted to do. Mm. Um, I didn't leave because I didn't want to change things. I left because I couldn't, I came to believe I can't. Mm. And I left so that I could leave a door open for anyone else who wants to go to. Mm. I wanted to stay so that I could leave a door for people to stay. And that wasn't, that wasn't going to be possible for me. That wasn't what my calling is. Um, so that would be my offering for people who stay. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing um, your story and your, your time with us. I know that's probably not an easy story to tell. And uh, I really appreciate you being willing to tell it. So brave. And I so um, respect you as a pastor. And I'm so grateful that you've found a place that trusts you. Thanks, Brett.
So I'm back with Megan. We originally recorded her episode um, that you just heard uh, several months ago. It is now April 2022. And one of the things that I've been asking everyone in their interviews, or I guess most of the the people that I've interviewed, is kind of what the actual step-by-step sort of process was of um, transitioning out of the, the Church of the Nazarene and into their new context. And I know that when we originally recorded back in November, 2021, um, you actually weren't all the way through that process yet. So I'd love to just check back in with you um, yeah. and kind of see how that process went and maybe even just ask you how you're doing now after that. So but let's just yeah. start from the, the beginning and, and ask you, mm-hmm. what was that kind of credentialing transfer situation mm-hmm. like for you? So, um, so I was ordained in the Church of the Nazarene in 2018. Um, so in March, 2021, yeah, March, 2021 is when I had the conversation with my Nazarene DS that I was one resigning from my local church as the pastor, mm-hmm. um, for separate reasons and some related reasons, um, to my credentials. Um, and so um, he and I had a Zoom. I told him I was resigning and he was um, very, at that time, um, and then that moment, very supportive, very encouraging, understood all the reasons that I was resigning. And, and I was trying, as I was trying to resign, I was also trying to say, and I'm also, um, we're having a conversation about me leaving the denomination. And I said, yeah, so I'm, um, also, we also need to talk about me leaving the church of the Nazarene. Um, so at that point, um, I'd already started conversations with the United Methodist church, um, because I knew that I needed to have the conversations in that order. Mm. Um, so for me, and it would, and I want to first of all, clarify that every United Methodist conference would handle this differently. Every district might handle this differently. Every Nazarene district might handle this differently, but this mm-hmm. is how it went for me, sure. um, is that I was going to be brought in to the United Methodist church as a minister from another denomination is their title for it, um, which would be like a special assignment in the church of the Nazarene. Mm-hmm. Or, and so I was going to be on loan and keep my credentials in the church of the Nazarene um, because I was going to have to serve as a United Methodist pastor under appointment at a church for a certain amount of time before I could apply for my credentials to be recognized, mm. um, which is just how their process works. Um, initially, that was supposed to be two full years and then apply two full-time years. So through, uh, for United Methodists, all of us start our appointments July 1st and all appointments end or renew on June 30th. So I was going to have to serve July 1 through June 30th twice, and then I could ask for my credentials to be recognized. Mm-hmm. Um, but in order for me to re- finalize my appointments with the United Methodist Church, um, the Methodist conference had to receive confirmation from my Nazarene district that I was an elder in good standing. Mm. So I had to tell him before I was officially starting. Um, and so I did. Um, and I said, well, anyways, this is, 
Um, what's going to happen is the Methodist DS is going to give you a call and he'll ask you some questions and make sure that I'm in good standing. And then Nazarene DS said, he said, as an elder, you have three years to do anything you want um, with your credentials. So just go and serve and we wish you well, sort of a deal. Um, and so I was, you know, okay, I have three years. That's about how long the process would normally take in the United Methodist Church, mm -hmm. golden. Um, my DS had, my Methodist DS um, had me go ahead and at that point asked me to write a letter to the bishop asking for my credentials to be recognized at the next annual conference. Um, which would still be really expedited, right? So instead of being three years, this was be one year. Mm. <laughs> um, um, but um, for reasons unknown to me, and it's totally fine, I'm not upset about this, um, that didn't happen. That didn't get submitted to the bishop and that's fine and worked out for the best anyways. Um, and it might be, like I said, that he understood that it needed to wait. So anyways, so I, I start my appointment at my church, my new church on July 1st. Um, I'm serving there, um, Meth United Methodists have term limits on our district superintendents and my, the DS that brought me on ended his term. And so I got a new DS, hmm. um, who's lovely and he is really great. And he, um, he actually is a transfer in as well from a different denomination. Oh, so wow. he, and so there's like some really good understanding there. Yeah. Um, and I was recommended to go ahead and start my United Methodist classes. So polity history doctrine or mm -hmm. three courses. So I went ahead and started those, finished them summer into the fall semester online. And then in the fall, yeah, this past fall, um, I was asked by my presiding elder to, um, who's also the chair of the board of ordained ministry for the United Methodist Church for a conference. Um, I was asked to write a letter to the bishop asking to be have my credentials recognized at the next annual conference, which is June in 2022. Mm -hmm. um, the bishop didn't get my letter right away because they had to handle some other things, mm -hmm. which is fine. Um, and then she received it and then they have to do all this paperwork and stuff. So they're handling all that in the background. And then fast forward to February of this year and I get a phone call on my way home one day and as soon as it pops up on my phone, I know exactly what's going to happen. So I answer the call and he says, I have a DAB meeting at the end of this month. Can you have an answer to me ahead of the end of February? And I was like, you're calling me at the beginning of February and you want me to have a process that's already been expedited by, a th by like two thirds, two years taken off. And I said, I need to talk to my district superintendent. I need to talk to some folks on the conference. Can you give me some time? And he goes, well, if I don't hear from you by the end of the month, I'm just going to start dragging my feet. Is that fine? I said, that would be great. Thank you. So I get off the phone with him and honestly, immediately spun into like a panic attack. Mm. Like I'm shaking. I'm sobbing in my car. I'm not okay. Right. This is like really bad. Um, and just like awakens all of this grief and awakens all of this pain and all of these things that... Like I knew, but also like, so I call all my Methodist DS and leave them a voicemail explaining the situation. And he calls me back a couple hours later and he is immediately like, I'm sorry, this is happening. Mm -hmm. And we are going to take care of you and we are going to protect your credentials. He goes, but I don't know how, what that process is going to look like tonight. If you do not hear from me by the beginning of next week with a plan, 
call me and we will start making like background plans. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay. And I'm like sobbing on the phone and he's just like pastoring me, caring for me as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, the next morning I got a call from my presiding elder who is like, we're going to take care of you. You're okay. And also it's okay to grieve and just like caring for me as a person, pastoring me through this moment. And also here's the plan. So within 24 hours, they had a plan for how they were going to protect me as a pastor and me as a person moving forward. Um, they um, had to call a, what's a called a clergy session, um, which is, so in order for my credentials to be recognized, um, the gathering of clergy um, called the clergy session at our um, annual conference was going to, has to vote. Well, they can have a clergy session at any time, but obviously having clergy gather from all over the conference is complicated. Sure. They realized they could make call an emergency session on Zoom. So the bishop agreed to it. They rushed through all my paperwork. Um, they hold an, another interview for me with the committee that specifically handles transfers from other denominations. Um, and all of it is just them saying, we're, we're like, we're here with you. We're so sorry. And like, just grieved with me through that Mm -hmm. interview. And it was them saying like, this is painful and we're with you. So by the end of, uh, that month, just before the end of February, um, they voted unanimously in a clergy session over zoom to receive my credentials and made me recognize me as a United Methodist elder. Um, my journey with that is not over. Um, I still have to, you know, they're kind of like doing it backwards. Right. So any classes I have to make up, I still have to go through those. Um, I still have to go through interviews and psyche valves and physicals and all these different things. Right. Um, and, uh, I have to, um, go through like the process of becoming a member of the conference. Um, but like, I'm completely severed from the church of the Nazarene and Mm -hmm. I am officially an elder in the United Methodist church. Um, so that's not a very, that's not how the process is supposed to go. Um, and so as a part of that conversation with the Nazarene DS, he, he wanted the piece of paper in his hand before district assembly. Um, because what is supposed to happen is I send that paper to my bishop. My bishop mm-hmm. stamps the back with a date saying when my ordination was received into the United Methodist Church and she signs it and then I sign it. And that's still my ordination certificate because I am ordained into the Church of Jesus Christ. And the Church of the Nazarene is the only denomination that not just my conference, but anywhere my bishop has served that has demanded it back. Wait, I'm okay, so I'm, maybe I'm confused. You had to give back your credentials anyway? even though you, you, but it's not the ordination was recognized by ordination is not the certificate. Sure. Right. But they equate it with the certificate mm. at leadership levels, at the district level, at the GMC, your certificate is equivalent to that piece of paper as far like as administration it. wise and yeah. in their minds. Right. Yeah. So my, my bishop is going to do is sign a scanned copy of my ordination certificate. And that's what will hang on the wall in my office. Hmm. So I wrote a letter with it. I was, I was really directing my letter. Hmm. Um, I wasn't mean, 
but I was really direct and sent it in and said, here's my certificate, do with it, whatever, do with it, whatever you wish. Like mm. if you need this back so badly, you can just have it. Mm. Um, so they announced at district assembly in the first week of April that they revoked my credentials. Yep. What did, how, how can I ask how you know that? Because a friend of mine is a pastor on that district and did not realize that that would be a deeply painful, offensive thing. Took a picture of that note on the report and sent it to me. And I think in a weird way, that hurt almost as much as that conversation back in February. Mm. Because the first thing I said in my letter that I sent with my credentials was, I deserve to tell my story on my terms. Mm. No one has the right to tell my story. That my credentials were transferred out. That's literally in the manual that that can happen. No, no. I told the entire district that they revoked my credentials because I united with another denomination. So it has been hellish to go through this. Mm. Um, and like, so the night that they held this, in, this special clergy session, my presiding elder, my friend calls me and he says, the first words out of his mouth are, you're safe now. Mm. And I instantly just started crying. And I said, Jeff, I don't think you understand. I've never been able to say that before, ever. At any point in my licensed ordained ministry in the Church of the Nazarene. And he goes, I'm going to give you some time. I can tell you're like really in a lot of pain, but I want you to know you're safe and we're excited and we care about you. Welcome to the United Methodist Church. And it's just staggering the lengths that they went to, that all these committees went to, that all of these pastors went to, that all these people on the conference went to to make sure that my ordination was safe. Hmm that I could continue pastoring and fulfilling the call that God placed in my life when I was 14 years old. Mm. Um, so in terms of process, I don't know that my journey is super helpful for others. Um, um, I'm just deeply beyond words grateful for my Methodist colleagues and friends. Yeah, in as much as it is mine to say, I'm I'm so sorry for the sense of loss that you must be feeling. Same. I appreciate that. Well, thanks for taking the time to come back on and um, give us an update on the process. I appreciate you.
Since we love millennials so much on this podcast, we thought it would be appropriate to promote our fellow millennial authors. Here's one now. I don't know when it happened, but at some point I decided I was no longer willing to lie about what hurts. My book, Signs of Life, is my witness of both my hurts and startling, unsettling, unexpected resurrection. This book is an honest telling of my journey with chronic mental health challenges, significant church hurt, and other wounds, and serves as my testimony to the dogged commitment of God to resurrection. You can grab a copy at a local bookstore or Barnes & Noble or Amazon. There are paperback, Kindle, or audiobook versions available. Find a free study guide for small group discussion at stephanielobdell.com. There is a link in the description if you would like to buy their book. Thank you for supporting your local millennial pastor slash author. The Millennial Pastor Podcast was created and produced by Byron Certain and Josiah Jones. This season's guest host is Britt Bullerjack. Our editor is Caden Barksdale. And original music was done by Andrew Jones. This podcast is part of the Millennial Pastor Podcasting Network. For more podcasts like it, please visit themillennialpastor.com. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you can join us on the next episode of the Millennial Pastor Podcast.